Okay, once again, welcome back to Kingdom 101. And we want to say hi also to our SoundCloud subscribers and listeners. Always wonderful to have you tuning in and receiving the teaching. We hope that you continue to be blessed as you continue to follow along with Kingdom 101 teachings. Let's begin by praying and we'll get into this evening's session. Heavenly Father, we begin by praising you. We give you praise, O Lord. Tonight is the 90th session of Kingdom 101. It's been four years since we started this by your leading. And we know, Lord, that we can do nothing apart from you. And so, Lord, we give you all praise. Lord Jesus, we give you all glory. You are the one that we want to proclaim. This is your word that we want to declare. So will you help us as you have always been doing all these four years and all these sessions? Holy Spirit, will you enable me? And will you also teach all of us so that we can learn the right things and then be able to serve you and also to serve others? We bless you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's begin with a very simple question. Have you ever encountered people who are plain stubborn? That was allowed, yes. And that was also very, very automatic, right? I'm sure we would have come across people who have been, well, a little bit difficult. You want to share things with them, you want to talk to them, you want to convey something, and somehow they are not listening or they don't want to listen. You do your very best and they simply refuse to get it or they just don't get it at all. Sometimes they ask you questions and you think that they want to know the answers, but they're just asking for the sake of asking. They're not very interested to know the answers. And the fact is this, their minds are already made up. Their hearts are actually in a different place. And tonight we want to ask this question, what do we do with these guys? What do we do with people like that, right? It's difficult, it's tough. And I'm sure you've struggled with it. I've had my own struggles also. And this seems to be the case between Jesus and the religious leaders and the teachers. We've been going through Matthew chapter 12. And you've been following with us. You know that Matthew 12 records the increasing opposition against Jesus. The Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders, the teachers, they challenge Jesus and then he answers and then Jesus heals a man with a withered hand and they accuse him of breaking the law for not observing the Sabbath. After that, Jesus casts out a demon and they say, oh, you are empowered by the devil. And then Jesus warns them, you better be careful with your words. You are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And so in turn now, they say, oh, cannot use words, huh? Okay, now I ask for a sign then. Can you show me a sign? What do you do with guys like these, right? Whatever you do, whatever you say, it just doesn't seem to be good enough. So let's learn, let's learn from Jesus. Let's read tonight's passage in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, 
a greater than Solomon is here. You have to read this passage in context of what I've just shared with you of Matthew chapter 12. This guy didn't just come and say, Jesus, will you show us a sign? Jesus had already shown quite a bit. Jesus had already been doing miracles and he has been demonstrating the work and the presence and the power of God. And yet these guys come and they go, can you show us a sign? Teacher, we want to see a sign. Now we know, that when you understand Scripture, that the Jews will look for signs. They will look for miracles, wonders. Why? Because they want to prove that God is present. You look back to the time of the deliverance from Egypt. Mighty signs and wonders. Forty years in the wilderness. Mighty signs and wonders. Old Testament, all about signs and wonders. And so the Jews, not surprising, they will ask, we want to see a sign. But excuse me, they just saw a sign and they attributed it to the devil. We want to see another sign, they said. Well, read Matthew chapter 8 and 9 and you will see that there are more than one sign, two signs, three signs. There were so many signs about the kingdom of God. How many more signs, how many more miracles would you take to convince people like that? So when it comes to that point, Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm sorry, no sign. So on one hand, they are shouting, show me a sign. Jesus says, no more signs. He answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it. Our Lord refused to be drawn into their little antics, and He didn't want to play their game at all because He knew their hearts. And just like the teaching previously where we spoke about the tree and the fruit and the brood of vipers, he's very, very clear. He says, look, an evil and adulterous generation. These guys will ask for signs, but they don't really want to know the signs. They don't want the answers at all. Their hearts are already made up. An evil heart is one that is hardened, uh, proud, uh, hypocritical, double-talking, double-minded, cynical, skeptical. They don't understand all these kind of things. Not only that, they were an adulterous generation. And whenever the Bible talks about adultery, it speaks not only of physical, sexual immorality, but it also talks about spiritual adultery. Remember James chapter 4, verse 4. Very, very strong words. I quote that often. He says, in no uncertain terms, you adulterers and adulteresses. And then he explains, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so guys, if you are going to be friends with this world, guess what title you're going to be called by? Adulterers and adulteresses. Spiritual adultery is all about people who are self-seeking. They are looking after themselves. They are worshipping a God that is modeled by themselves. It's after their own image. They are seeking after their own pleasure. They are not kingdom-minded. And so Jesus says, to this generation or any generation that is evil and adulterous, Sorry, no sign will be given. I'm not going to show you any more signs. I've given you so many signs. You miss every sign. You find fault with anything and with everything. You reject every sign. No sign will be given except. Except. And don't you love the Lord? Right? He's always saying, no, 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 except. Right? Cannot, cannot. But there's always something there that the Lord will leave because He will give every opportunity to the people. There's no excuse. 
And so the people shout, show the sign. Jesus says, no sign. And they go, we want a sign. He said, you want one sign? I give you one sign. No other sign will be given except this one sign. And this sign is all that is needed. This is the sign that you need to pay heed to. You have to accept this sign. You can miss every other sign. Don't miss this one. No other sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. So let's get into this one phrase here. What is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Now, we are very familiar with this biblical character called Jonah. If you have been to Sunday school enough, you will have colored enough Jonah pictures. What about the sign of the prophet Jonah? Verse 40, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, we know Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II, son of Joash. The reign of this king was between 793 to 753 BC. God used Jonah to prophesy good stuff, the expansion of Israel, although Israel was going through a moral decline. He was zealous for Israel. He loved the people of God. Hence, it explains his reluctance to go to Assyria when God finally said to him, I want you to go to Nineveh. And he knew as a prophet, because he has been already declaring this over the people of God, he knew the other prophetic pronouncements that there will be an enemy raised up and God will use that enemy to overrun Israel. And that is Assyria. So can you imagine if you are Jonah and God says, now I want you to go preach to Assyria. It's like, why would I even think of doing that? I don't want this kingdom assignment at all. So the book of Jonah records Jonah's kingdom assignment to Nineveh. Did he want this assignment? No. Did he enjoy it? No. So whenever someone tells you, you need to enjoy a kingdom assignment, ask them to read Jonah. Right? Sometimes we would tell ourselves, and oh, you know, if you don't enjoy it, then it cannot be God's kingdom assignment for you. Read the book of Jonah, and it will change your mind. Now, we know that he was rebellious. He was disobedient. He books a cruise to go to Tashish. And things didn't go very well, right? There's this great storm. God sends a great wind, and they have this little exchange. He gets thrown off, and God sends this fish. Now, some say it's a whale. Uh, we just know it's a great fish. We don't really know what species it is. And some have also looked at this book and asked, is it a parable? Is it real? Or is it just allegory? Well, Jesus refers to Jonah's experience in the belly of the great fish. So what Jesus was quoting was from Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. So that's very important because our Lord and our Master and our King quotes from this book himself. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days, three nights. So Jesus points to and parallels an actual event that he himself will go through. And in doing so, he validates the account of Jonah as historical, as literal, and also as accurate. So what is this sign of Jonah? We know it involves three days and three nights. Now, you and I, we are Christians. We've been in the church long enough. We know that the sign of Jonah points to 
the death and the burial specifically. And after that, the resurrection of Jesus. If we consider Jonah's prayer in the belly of the fish, in chapter 2 onwards, it's a rather long prayer. You can read it for yourself, but I pick out a few verses for you. Verse 2, out of the belly of Sheol I cried. Now Sheol, is no, you know, is the place of the dead. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 4 is interesting. I have been cast out of your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Does it sound familiar? I have been cast out from your sight. Oh Lord, have you forsaken me? Uh, verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Which means it's like a no return kind of stuff. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit. See, these languages, words are important. And verse 9. Salvation is of the Lord. See, as a prophet, Jonah was inspired by the Psalms of David. But as you read this, does it not remind us of messianic psalms that point to Jesus? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Messianic psalm. Chapter 22, verse 1. Quoted again by Matthew in 27, verse 46. You have answered me. Psalm 22, verse 21. And Jesus cries out and God does answer him. So Jonah, three days, three nights in the belly of the fish. Jesus parallels that three days, three nights in the heart of the earth. It's about the death and the burial of Jesus and his subsequent resurrection. Imagine you were a Pharisee or a scribe at that point in time. This would have been like, huh? What are you talking about, right? Because at that moment, this would have been a future event to the Pharisees. The event had not happened yet. But when it does, I think Jesus was giving this huge hint when it does, don't miss this sign. You can miss all the others, but don't miss this one. All the others will point to this one event. And yet, at the same time, we can ask ourselves, of all people, don't you think the Pharisees and the scribes should know their scriptures? Were they clueless? Or perhaps they might have caught on to this hint a little bit, but refused to understand it or refused to even accept it. And so let's see, how does the sign of the prophet Jonah, how was this sign fulfilled by considering this phrase, three days and three nights? Now we know that when we celebrate the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus, we would normally look at Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday. And if you look at your scriptures, you know certain key events, they are very, very clear. On the first day of the week, the women go to the tomb and discover that Jesus was no longer there. Why? Because He is risen. So the resurrection, we know, and the visit was definitely around the first day of the week. And what day would that be for us in our Gregorian calendar? Sunday. Now we also know that the Sabbath, which is the seventh day, the body had to be taken down before the Sabbath. So there was this one day called the Sabbath. And before the Sabbath, we know Jesus celebrated the Passover with the disciples. So if we put all these things in some chronological sequence, we will then see that after Passover, Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. After that, the trial began through the night. First with the chief priests, the entire Sanhedrin, and then later on, early in the morning, the next day, 
there is a trial before Pilate. And not only that, Pilate then sends him to Herod. And then Herod sends him back to Pilate. And following which, there's this whole discussion and Pilate sends Jesus off to be scourged and to be whipped. And then he comes back and he sentences Jesus. And then our Lord has to take the Via Dolorosa, the way to the cross. Now we also know from Scripture that crucifixion happened about 9 a.m. It was the third hour. At the sixth hour, which is 12 noon, all the land became dark from 12 noon to 3 p.m. And then at 3 p.m., at the ninth hour, Jesus then cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his spirit and he died. At that point in time, we understand that that was when the priests would kill the Passover lamb at the temple. The veil was torn in the temple. There was an earthquake and it was recorded in Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. Jesus, who died at that time, later on Paul calls him the Passover lamb. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. And they had to take down the body before the Sabbath. We know that. And then quickly bury the body. And so the burial was just after sundown, just before the Sabbath. And following that, Jesus would then be in the tomb and then would be raised again after that. So if you count, if you look at the sequence of events, remember that a Jewish day starts from sundown to the next sundown. And so when I try to read the Bible and I try to compare notes, uh, how many of you are like me? We, we get totally confused. Like, So is it this day or is it that day? Is it this evening or is it the next morning? So I've done you a favor. You can look at the screen. I'm sorry, those who are listening in, you don't have this screen to look at. So you have to do your own homework. We count. There's one day there, there's two days, and there's three days, right? But if you look at three days from the time of burial, then you will see... So there's a night and a day, first day. There's a night and a day, the second day. And there's a night and a day, the third day. But by looking at this chart, you can see that it only took about 36 hours and not 72 hours. If you count three full days, you'll be 24 times three, which means 72 hours. But if you look at the sequence of events according to this, it would be 36 hours. So is that okay? We have to ask ourselves as we look at Scripture. Well, again, we understand that three days is a Jewish idiom. And it doesn't have to be a literal three days, 72 hours. Um, they count that a part of the day is also considered one full day. So it's all right. As long as it touches that part of the day, it's counted as one day. So when we understand this, then you can see the first day was just a part of the day. The second day was a full day. And the third day was a part of the day. So three days, no problem. If you do some research, certain teachers actually stretch it out a little bit more. And they count the time from the arrest of Jesus. Simply to denote that the moment he was arrested, there was no way he was going to get out. So when they add the time of arrest, that means the very, very first night in the Garden of Gethsemane, depending on what time it was. Was it midnight? Was it 1 a.m. in the morning? 2 a.m. in the morning? He was arrested. You can see that it stretches out a little bit more, but it still does not 
add up to 72 hours. But the question you and I need to ask is then, um, does being arrested and put into the hands of the enemy, does it fulfill that phrase that the Son of Man was three days, three nights in the heart of the earth? That seems to denote a burial, does it not? Okay, So that's the first traditional view, which, well, Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday is coming up, so when you celebrate it soon, this teaching would help you understand it better. That sounds all right, except when you start to read the scriptures again, you see one verse in John chapter 19, verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, bracket, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So there was a request of the priests and the teachers and the leaders to say, we can't keep the bodies there on a Sabbath. Now, we understand why. But there's this funny phrase there that says, for that Sabbath was a high day. What high day is this? To understand this, we have to go back to the book of Leviticus to review the spring feasts. And here in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, the Lord said to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. Rehearsals for something that's up and coming. All right? A holy convocation. These are my feasts. And when you read through from verses 3 onwards to 22, they describe the spring feasts. And following that, there will be another set of feasts in the autumn. Now the first that is described is the Sabbath. And you and I know what the Sabbath is. Every sixth day you work, on the seventh day you will do no work, you will rest. And that's called the Sabbath. Then in verses 4 and 5, you have to remember the Passover. Now, the Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the first month of Nisan. And this is to commemorate their coming out of Egypt, their deliverance from being slaves. Now, the very next day after Passover, you celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread for seven days. Now, because these two items, the Passover and the Unleavened Bread, they feature so closely together, they can be counted as the Passover in and one entire group. But if you look at it on its own, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread is seven days. Then the Lord says, now when you get into the land, now wilderness is one thing, but when you get into the land, and you start to plow, you start to sow, and then you begin to receive the fruit, then you have this Feast of the First Fruits that will happen the day after a Sabbath, you will take this First Fruit and do a wave offering. And after this waving of this first fruits offering, the very next day you count seven weeks. And that's called the Feast of Weeks. So seven times seven will be 49. And then the 50th day will then be the celebration of the harvest that is to come. Okay, I hope this gives you a good overview of the feast. But the one we want to look at in particular is actually the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And it says in verse 7 and 8, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. 
You cannot work. In other words, it's like a Sabbath. Now, on the seventh day, you also do it like a Sabbath. But this is called the High Sabbath or a special Sabbath. And that's why John refers to this, for that Sabbath was a high day, a high Sabbath. Okay, so without understanding the feast, you and I would miss this completely. So now there is a Sabbath, which is a regular Sabbath, as well as a special Sabbath or a high Sabbath. So now there are two Sabbaths. Now if we put this again into a sequence of events. On the first day, we know that there is the resurrection. That one does not change. Scripture is consistent where that's concerned. But we know that there's a seventh day here, then there's a Sabbath down here. But there's a high Sabbath. So the high Sabbath appears a little bit before that. And so the Passover happens one day before the high Sabbath. Now many times we presume that the Passover should happen on the Thursday. But you see, they don't go by the Gregorian calendar as we do. They go by the new moon. And just like Chinese New Year, every year is different. Passover every year is also different. It doesn't have to always fall on the same day. It falls on the same date, which is the 14th of Nisan. Okay, but it does not have to fall on the same calendar day. Am I okay so far? So after the Passover, you can see that Jesus was arrested in Gethsemane. It was the dark of the night. The next morning, he goes through again all the trials. And then finally, he's crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. He dies at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. He's buried just before the high Sabbath. Same thing. You can't have the body hanging on a Sabbath. After that, he stays in the tomb. There's a feast of unleavened bread, number one. Day number two. And we know that day number three coincides with the Sabbath because it's a seventh day. After that, then he resurrects from that point forth on the first day of the week. There are some scriptures here also that seem to suggest uh, this kind of a timeline. For example, in Mark chapter 16, verse 1, we are told that when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. So if we look at a regular Sabbath, then we would think they bought the spices here in the Pasamalam at night. And they were preparing it for here. But in Luke chapter 23, verse 56, it says, Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, prepared here, and they rested on the Sabbath. That means there's one more Sabbath to come. So a possible way of understanding these two verses would be, when the high Sabbath was passed, the women went out and they prepared, they bought all the spices and they had this whole day here still to prepare. After that, they returned and then they rested on the Sabbath. After that, the resurrection is the day after the Sabbath. It can be any time from Saturday nightfall, sundown here. Anytime. We don't know when it is. But we tend to think it is like on a Sunday morning morning. 
But we are told that by the time the women went there, it was still dark. Jesus was already risen. And so as Jesus was resurrected, we now know that he has become the first fruits. Paul quotes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Then you count seven Sabbaths, the Feast of Weeks, which is 49 days plus one more the next day. It's the Feast of the Harvest now. That's when the Holy Spirit falls on the disciples. That's the harvest that comes after the first fruits. And that's why we call it the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days. So the death, burial, and the resurrection now, if we count by the Jewish days, would be now one day. That means one night and one day. Night number two and day number two. Night number three and day number three. You actually get a full 72 hours here. And Jesus asked in John chapter 11, verse 9, uh, that was the account about Lazarus. Are there not 12 hours in the day? How come he didn't say, are there not 24 hours in the day? If it was a Jewish understanding of a day, right? So obviously he was referring to a daylight day. Are there not 12 hours in the day? Which means there will be how many hours in the night? 12 hours in the night. And if you study the scriptures, usually only two words are used. Three days are mentioned. Three days. And so I suppose a partial day could be counted. But whenever you have a phrase, three days and three nights, it's very seldom uh, used and quoted in the Scriptures. The only time we see it actually is in Esther chapter 4, verse 16. And then another time in another place, but different context. So when you have three days here, it seems to fulfill the sign of the prophet Jonah, three days and three nights. I tell you, I count this. I look at the, our day and their day, and I was so confused, and I've had sleepless nights. Because scriptures will keep coming back into my mind. But how about this, right? But how about that, you know? Uh, is it correct? No, I don't want to teach something wrong. I don't want to give a wrong perspective, yeah? And I want you to check this out too. And one of the latest questions that popped into my mind was, wait, hang on. Didn't Jesus rise on the third day? If you count three days like that, then it would be after the third day. So is it on the third day or is it after the third day? On the third means the other interpretation would be correct. It's on the third. For this is after the third. And so I got up and I, and I checked scriptures one more time. And the Pharisees told Pilate to say this deceiver, called Jesus the deceiver. This deceiver said, after three days, I will rise. The words of Jesus himself, after three days, I will rise. Jesus himself says to the disciples, don't you know that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. These are these two references, after three days. But in other references, on the third day. And so this Singaporean got confused. And as you read certain commentators and commentaries, they'll tell you on, after, means about the same thing. I say, you've got to love the Jews for this. I cannot understand. All I have is to, to study what they mean and what they say. 
right? And some record after, some record on, but there's a harmony of Scripture, so I can only accept that when they say on, it can be on that third day, after the third day, anything after that, it's okay. But why is three days and after the three days also critical? Because it is proof that Jesus was really and totally dead. Do you remember the case of Lazarus? Jesus delayed deliberately. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. I don't know how you want to come. Is it after three days, so on the fourth day? Is it exactly the same reference, but phrased in a different way? But the point of the matter is this. Jesus waited so that Lazarus was really and truly dead. There's no way he could have just fainted. And Jesus was in the tomb for three full days. And after the three days, everyone would say, Really, la, die already. La. There's no way he can survive. And Jesus rises again. And it's in the account of Lazarus with that same parallel type of a teaching and even timing. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I'm sharing both positions with you because I think when we teach, we want to give you that perspective for you to consider. I think the jury is still out there. People are still fighting with each other. One camp says, no, 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 no. The partial three days is okay. It's still counted as three days. And the other camp says, no, no. But if you read the other uh, scriptures, you know, how do you account for that? Uh, the three full days, three full nights are important. And they're still pointing fingers at, at one another. And I want to give this information to you, this material to you, so that you are well positioned to consider which is the one that you are convicted about. Study the scriptures for yourself. But the point again is this. Whichever position you take, don't miss the sign. Right? Don't major in the minus. I know I've spent quite a bit of time explaining this to you. By the look of the faces, some are still very confused. Yeah? And I understand that. I mean, it took me more than three days and three nights to figure this out myself. But whatever that position, don't miss the sign of the prophet Jonah. This is for our learning. It's not for us to miss the sign, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this was the Lord's main point to the Pharisees and the scribes. He doesn't say it openly, but I think in his heart, he's probably saying to them, you know your scriptures. The scriptures testify of the Messiah. And you miss it big time. John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. You are trying to teach people here, right? You are splitting hair because of scripture. I am the one that gave scripture. I am the Messiah that scripture talks about. Don't miss me. If you know your scriptures well enough, you will see that the Messiah was prophesied to die and to be buried, and to rise again. Scriptures point to this very clearly, to the disciples on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Himself. And He didn't stop there. Later on, when He met with the rest of the disciples, in verses 44 to 48 of Luke 24, He said to them, 
These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All things must be fulfilled according to the scriptures. I'm paraphrasing here. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he says this to them. Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. See, scripture testifies to this. And the Pharisees and the scribes who were teachers of the law, they missed it totally. The sign of Jonah is consistent with Scripture. You may not believe all the other signs. You can dispute whether is it of this person or of this, whatever it is. But when you see this sign, when it finally comes, will you believe it? Will you believe it? If not, then he goes on with the next two verses. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So the Lord recounts these Old Testament examples once more. And you know that the men of Nineveh repented. They responded in the way that is correct. Now, they never saw the sign. You notice this? I don't think Jonah went out there and said, Excuse me, I've been three days and three nights in the fish. Can you smell me? <laughs> All the Bible says is he gets into Nineveh and he declares, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And credit to these people, they repented. From the top to the bottom to all the animals, they repented. And Jesus says, these guys will rise up in the judgment with you guys, this generation, and they will judge you. The queen of the south, if you read 1 Kings as well as 2 Chronicles, 1 Kings, you'll find this person in chapter 10 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9. She's referred to as the queen of Sheba. And again, the commentators have studied this and believe that she came from the south and possibly from that nation called Ethiopia. Now, she had hard questions for Solomon, and Solomon answered all of them. But she doesn't stop there. She acknowledges Solomon's king and God. Not just he as king, but his God. Then, after that, she experienced the blessing of the kingdom. See, don't just think of her coming and say, can I ask a few questions? Huh? Let's see how let's dim kopi. That, that wasn't it. She had questions that were difficult, maybe issues of life, or she needed an alpha program then. <laughs> right? She comes to Solomon, she gets all the questions answered, she acknowledges this is not just you, it's God who has given this to you. She blesses Solomon, and Solomon didn't say, thank you very much, huh? thank you, huh? bye. He then blesses her in return, even more what she gave to him. And she received the blessings of the kingdom. Now, did she believe in that sense? Yes, she did. She acknowledged God. And she will rise with this generation in the judgment and condemn this generation. And the Lord is saying, look, if this Ninevites can listen to Jonah, a greater Jonah is here. If the queen of the south can listen to Solomon, with all, with all his splendors, all his wisdom, there's one that's greater than Solomon. But as we look at this, I don't want you to miss certain implications here. This is a sight teaching. And I hope this will bless you. This will help you. 
this helps us understand kingdom assignments a little bit. We look at these two examples. And I give you three simple points on here, very simple ones. The first thing is this. God can send us to others or God can bring others to us. It can happen either way. God sends Jonah out on a kingdom assignment, but God keeps Solomon in Israel and brings the queen to Solomon. And the queen was drawn to Solomon's kingdom wisdom. So implication for kingdom assignments. Sometimes you are sent from AA to AO. You've got to get out into an area of operation. Sometimes your area of operation is in assembly area itself. It's in AA and you stay there. Because God will draw people to come to you. So God sends us to others or brings others to us. The second, as I consider these two accounts, God's mercy reaches out. God's wisdom draws in. Did you get that? God's mercy reaches out. God's wisdom draws in. See, the whole book of Jonah and about his kingdom assignment was not primarily about a judgmental God. It was about a God who is merciful. It's so easy to miss this whole picture because the message of Jonah sounds like a judgment message. 40 days and God will judge you. You're going to be gone. You're going to be smithereens. You're going to be chowta bakwa. Right? Sounds like a judgment, fire and brimstone thing. But it's not that. It's for God to demonstrate His mercy when the people turn. And so our kingdom assignments, if you are to express the mercy of God, then is to get out there because God's mercy reaches out and it reaches far. But God's wisdom draws in. So if you are living with kingdom wisdom, your own family, your own business, your own ministry, there's a certain attraction to the way you do things. And if you are living by the wisdom of the kingdom, people can't help but notice. And they will come to you and ask you, can I drink coffee with you? Can I talk to you about your business? How do you live this way? How come your life is different? And then you get to bless them with God's kingdom blessings. If they will accept that wisdom and acknowledge the source of that wisdom. The third thing I see is that God desires everyone to know Him as the true God. See, Jonah thought it was very exclusive, right? It was just the people of God. It's just us versus them. God has to change His mind, turn Him upside down. And I think somewhere inside his heart, Jonah knew that I don't think it's just us. I just don't want to include other people. And sometimes we can be like that also. We, we think our kingdom assignment is just around ourselves. Help one another. But God might be wanting to say, look, it's not exclusive. It is inclusive. God welcomes everyone and God includes everyone in that sense. He desires to save all even the Gentiles. Three implications for kingdom assignments, a side lesson as we draw from Scripture. But imagine again if you were the Pharisees and Jesus uses these examples. 
if the Gentiles can respond rightly, the question is, will the people of the kingdom respond correctly? You revere David, there's one greater than David. You worship the temple, there's one greater than the temple. Right? You look to Solomon of great glory, there's one greater and wiser than Solomon. You look at Jonah as a good prophet of God, there's one greater than Jonah. Don't miss the sign of the prophet Jonah. Who were the people who responded? All Gentiles, the examples here. This was a big slap. You want a sign? Jesus gave him a sign, all right. No? It was like, wake up your idea, guys. It was like an ouch thing. You know, you, all these signs you still cannot see. Hello. The Gentiles know how to respond. And not only that, they respond correctly. And if you don't, the Gentiles get to judge you. No wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. No wonder they were upset with him. So what do you do with people like that? What do you do with an evil and adulterous generation, a heart that is hardened, a heart that is proud, a heart that doesn't want to know anything anymore? They're asking the questions. They don't want to know the answers because they've already made up their minds. Let's learn from Jesus. He was both merciful and wise. There's no doubt about it. He was very merciful. Sign after sign after sign. He did all that he could. He said what he had to say. He did everything. And finally, the biggest sign, he dies on the cross and gets buried three days, three nights, and be raised by God. If all these signs are still not enough, there's nothing more left to be said. And I think we have to come to terms with that. We learn from Jesus. Be as merciful as you possibly can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Be as wise as you can, but don't engage with fools beyond a certain point because the Bible says in Proverbs that if we engage a fool in his ways, we end up becoming like fools. So be merciful, be wise. But sadly, people who are evil and adulterers are not always looking for answers. And nothing will ever satisfy them. And Paul explains this very well. Because the message of the cross is a stumbling block. They can't understand the Messiah that has to die. They can't understand that. That's why when they read the scriptures, it just doesn't make sense to them. They were looking for a victorious king to save them. But to the Greeks, it would be foolish. And many of our friends and our contemporaries today, we are in a Greek-type culture where we need to explain things and debate things. And you can debate till the cows come home. They don't want to accept it. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. But you see, to those who are being saved, it is both the power and the wisdom of God. That's the sign. Paul says, Jews request a sign, but Greeks seek after wisdom but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling, foolish, and yet this is the sign. This is that sign. And to be true, the signs are really all over the place. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. And the Apostle Paul says, no one has any excuse. And yet Jesus and God and the Holy Spirit are all gracious. Sign after sign, sign after sign, sign after sign. Cajoling, sending prophets, sending friends, sending people like you, you know. 
to speak and to share and to declare and to do your kingdom assignments, pointing to the one big sign, three days, three nights, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The biggest sign of all, His love, His grace in Jesus Christ. Will you believe is the question, isn't it? And for us who are Christians, we say yes. But for those who have still to make a decision, we ask, will you believe? Will you enter into a covenantal relationship with Him? And if you say, yes, I believe, then all you need to do is just sign here by faith. Just agree to this covenant relationship by faith. Don't have to do anything else. And that's all there is to it. And so are you still looking for signs? Or are you convinced that the biggest sign has already been shown to us? Come, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we stand in awe of you. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for the work that you have done for us on the cross. Where you took our place, you died for us, you were buried, and you were raised by the power of God because you were sinless and death could not hold you down. Lord, we thank you for this promise that we have believed into. And I pray, Lord, that this sign is not just something we speak about, but I pray this sign will be evidently displayed through our lives. The power of all that you have done. The wisdom of God shown clearly through each and every one of us. So that when we meet the most difficult of people, we can extend the same grace. We can speak and share the same mercy because we've experienced the same from you. But I pray also that we need wisdom so that, Lord, we will know how to answer, when to engage, and when to pull back. And so I pray, Lord, will you help me and will you help my brothers and my sisters that, Lord, we will live worthy of all that you have done for us. We give you praise, we give you glory, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.